Hello and welcome to episode 9 of the Nerd Culture Podcast. I'm your host David and with me are the NCP crew, Richo. Nine episodes already. Crystal. Hello. And Luke. Happy birthday to us. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> you may hear some uh, weird sounds in the background just because it's raining here in good old Melbourne, Australia, which is not unusual. Nerd Culture Podcast is a fortnightly Australian podcast that focuses on nerd culture related film, book, and comic reviews with a healthy dose of opinion thrown in for good measure, because we know you want to hear what we have to say. Not only do we have the podcast, we also have our website at www.nerdculturepodcast.com, which features additional content not found on the podcast itself. For this episode, we have a popcorn junkie on John Carpenter's family-friendly effort, Starman, followed by From the Racks, concluding our coverage of the New 52 from DC Comics. So before we go into Popcorn Junkie, just a, a bit of a side note. On the passing of Steve Jobs, uh, co-founder of Apple, um, it's a, a loss, in my opinion. I mean, I didn't know the man personally, obviously, but a lot of people throw this word around, but I think he was a genius in his views on technology and, and interaction with people and just what technology could do for us, and uh, obviously a very good businessman. So uh, condolences to his family and uh, a loss to the world. Steve Jobs, rest in peace. First up, Popcorn Junkie. Yeah, so as mentioned in the intro, our popcorn junkie for this episode is Starman. It was nothing decent enough to review of any of the new releases. Um, I think the only one from recent times was uh, Real Real Steel or Steel Deal or whatever that thing's called. Real Steel. Yeah, Real Steel. I don't know. Whatever. Uh, which, you know, I'll see on. I'll see when it comes to home video. But it's, it's Rocky with robots. I'm sure it's lovely, but uh, I'm just not interested and when you describe a film as lovely, which involves giant beating up robots, then, uh, you know, Rock'em Sock'em Robots in all but name, it's not a good sign. It's lovely, Rock'em Sock'em Robots, thank you very much. <laughs> it's, it's got a heart, don't you understand that, Walt? Well, well, it does look very a lot, a lot more interesting than uh, Battleship. I mean, seriously. I don't remember Battleship. there ever being aliens in my board game version of Battleship. You were or even the electronic wrong Battleship. <laughs> <laughs> you sunk my crap movie. Okay, so, uh, Starman, directed by John Carpenter, starring Jeff Bridges, Karen Allen, and Charles Martin Smith. Starman basically involves the invitation that we made to other uh, alien civilizations to come visit us in the Voyager probe, and that, that call is answered. So an alien does actually come and visit us on Earth, takes the form of the dead husband of poor Karen Allen, who is, is noticeably upset by that turn of events. Uh, and oh, then it, then it becomes jumpy. a, yep, she's a bit jumpy, and uh, it then becomes a road movie where uh, the nature of humanity is discussed and and love and all sorts of wonderful things, and eventually the awesome ending. So that's pretty much the plot in a nutshell. Uh, quite different to uh, John Carpenter's previous efforts with uh, the thing, um, <laughs> <laughs> the complete opposite. Um, in fact, in the uh, director's commentary, John Carpenter said that he did. Starman because he wanted to do the complete opposite of the thing so he would still have a career in Hollywood. So uh... Interesting. He certainly, <laughs> he certainly stepped out of his comfort zone. It's the beginning of a return to, to um, lower budget movies. Yeah. I mean, the thing was obviously a huge, big, extravagant budget and I know that uh, he had certain discomforts with working in that uh, area. And Starman sort of brings it down to a sort of a bit more of a personal level and a sort of a smaller budget. Yeah, well, we started on extremely low budget with yeah. Halloween, obviously. and yeah. um, Assault on Precinct 13. That's right. I mean, and the Star. classic Dark Star. <laughs> Don't get me started on Dark Star. But uh, yeah, so then got to get, given a bit of money for the thing and had a pretty horrible experience, although the thing is brilliant. And then, uh, yeah, on to Starman. Mm. Interesting tidbit is... Uh, the script was developed at Columbia at the same time as another script arrived dealing with alien visitation, and uh, Columbia decided to go with Starman because it, they thought it would be, uh, you know, cheaper and easier to make. The other script turned out uh, they they then passed on the other script and that went to another studio and that script turned out to be ET. So, uh, in terms of box office return, a poor decision by Columbia. That's like rejecting the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> But, but you know you got to do what you got to do. Well, there's some very strong parallels well, between yeah. the two stories. Yeah. Um, 
And I don't know. This this may be controversy, but uh, I actually prefer Starman. Me too. Uh, I, I do. I think it, I, yeah. that's not controversial. Starman's a far better film. Mm. It's almost almost the same story as ET, but it's devoid of the sentimentality. The emotions are actually a lot stronger and a bit more interesting because it's ET for grown-ups. I'd even take it a bit further. It's ET but good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, it's more interesting. The relation, the nature of the relationship, is more interesting. As um, Dave said earlier on, the ending's fantastic. Mm. But there's actually it's actually dealing with something. The, mm. the human theme running through it is a woman being allowed to finally let go of her grief and say goodbye to her husband, mm. which is what I've, what I've always read Karen Allen's story yeah. to be. Um, and I think watching it recently, the ending actually dawned on me that what she was watching was um, effectively her husband's soul. Um, yeah, because so, when the alien arrives, it's a ball of light, mm. which uh, then becomes him using DNA mm. and uh, but then and then when it leaves you don't actually see it but then I mean the end sequence to me is just is is brilliant it's mm. it's I mean you don't get to see him actually ascend but I mean you have to assume he is because the color the light changes mm. and just the look on her face mm. it's just it's just so many emotions play across her face it's an excellent okay. acting performance it's just it's joy it's wonder resolution release it's just all in one shot mm. and then you know the music and then Fade to black, and yep. away it goes. It's just, but it's, yeah. So you have to assume that he, uh, he becomes the mm. ball of light again, and yeah, then, and and leaves to go back and leaves and and up <clears throat> to heaven. It's it's uh, it's excellent. It's it's far more subtle and has therefore a stronger emotional resonance than the end of ET. Yep. The end of ET is very obvious and very plain to to one specific emotion. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas in this film, yeah, the ending, as you say, it's it, it's a range of emotions that Karen Allen conveys, and by focusing on her. We really do get the the resolution to the real story, which, as uh, Luke has pointed out, is her coming to terms with the loss of her husband and and, and dealing with the grief and uh, and being allowed to say goodbye. Yeah, yeah, the chance to say mm. goodbye because mm. he yeah. died in an accident. Mm. Yeah, originally. So an overlooked performance, I believe, from Karen Allen, and also an excellent performance from Jeff, Jeff Bridges. Mm. Um, it's one of the few films that I can see Jeff Bridges in and not think the dude. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's on screen. I mean, he's, he's so very undude. And, uh, you know, that's a good thing. I mean, obviously this is way before, you know, The Big Lebowski, but uh, just an excellent, just an excellent performance and consistent. Mm. I mean, so it's, I mean, he's a stranger in a strange land and, mm. and uh, he just, he can't really control the body that he's in properly. And it's just, it's, mm. just, it's, it's, and it's just very, very good. Stuff. But things like going on his performance, things like um, the vocal tone and the way that he says things. Yep. Generally, even with, with the best of actors, they generally tend to slip. Like you'll, mm. there will be maybe a, fraction but you'll pick up on it and then they recover whereas he doesn't actually slip mm-hmm. it's kept pretty consistent the way that he communicates his characters pretty consistent throughout the entire film yeah I also love the really nuanced way that uh, towards the end when the body's starting to fail on him mm. and he's starting the body's dying on mm. him and uh, you can just tell it's it's not even a case of makeup although there is makeup to make him look a bit you know sallow and, and grey and stuff but just the way he moves mm. changes so strangely enough as he's dying he becomes more fluid mm. and it's just mm. it's it's, just, it's amazing stuff. One of the things that I find amazing with his character is just the wide range of emotions that he expresses, despite being sort of stunted and, you know, trying to sort of grow and develop and understand humanity. I mean, he provides some very, very funny moments in the film, but also some very moving moments. Mm. Um, you know, he's, he's a very relatable character for, you know, an alien that's trying to understand humanity. I, I find him, you know, you instantly start to feel for him. You can sympathise with what's happening to him and what he's going through. And um, when you combine that with the incredible um, emotions that Karen Allen is experiencing, it just gives that film that extra depth mm. that, um, you know, something that it, like E.T. and many of the other, you know, Stranger in a Strange Land, Aliens Arriving on Earth movies just can't seem to capture. Yeah, I, I like it. I totally agree with what you're saying about it. He's easily... It's more relatable. Because, I mean, as, as excellent as the E.T. puppet is, I mean, it's, it's an excellent job. Him being in human form and giving the performance that he does, it, just, it makes it it's a lot easier for me, actually, mm. to, to relate to him and, mm. and know what he's going through and stuff. One of the things I was struck with having rewatched it recently was the sheer simplicity of um, the way... Not only the script... But in the way that John Carpenter directs, it's sort of stripped of um, the big grand goinal, over-the-top action sequences that 
are in ET towards the end and are in, you know, earlier efforts like the day the Earth stood still and what have you. Um, and it's really just a, a bare-bones um, run, acro- run across um, America, focusing on the two characters. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciated that um, because there was nothing else to distract me. It was just a simple story about two people travelling together. Um, and comparisons were made in the feature to... Um, it Happened One Night with Clark Gable and Claudia, Claudia Colbert. And I f- found that parallel to be quite interesting because it, barring differences in character, the feel of the film is almost exactly the same. Mm-hmm. I appreciated the simplicity in the film far more. Um, I think um, John Carpenter is very sort of well known, especially in the films before this, for creating very atmospheric shooting. Hmm. Um, he's very clever with lighting and, and camera techniques and things to get across you know, the horror elements of his story. And one of the things I appreciate here is that he's actually, as you say, he's, he's really stripped back his directing and he's just allowing the characters and the script and the emotion of the story to actually carry the movie through. He doesn't get too clever with his directing. And I think that's a strength of the film as well. He allows the story to be told without trying to, you know, wow us with, you know, camera work or cinematography. And that's impressive. You know, he's really, he really has stepped away completely from his usual style of filmmaking in order to tell this story the right way. Mm. As I, th- I think uh, one of the, one of the detriments to the film to me is is the constant cutting back to Charles Martin Smith's character, the SETI guy. I just think it just sort of interrupts it interrupts the flow for because I mean here you are you have Je- you have Jeff Bridges and Karen Allen's excellent performances and their interaction, and then it cuts back to this guy who, I mean, no offense to the man, but his character is basically is, is pointless. I mean, it's not until it's not until the scene where he, where he finally stands up to the general and says, "Well, we invited him here." Up until then, it's he's a pointless character to me. He's just, he just it's the constant cigar chomping. He just I just find him kind of annoying to be honest with you. And then after that, when he finally gets some balls and and helps him out, still is such an such an anti climax to me that his character I could cut that entire his character out and just be done with it, and I wouldn't care. I don't think his character's pointless, but I do agree that it chopped and changed back between the scenes a bit too often. Yeah. The pacing was slightly off in the beginning, mm. but evened out more out thoroughly throughout the rest of the film. Yeah, and special mention needs to be made of Jeff Bridges' performances, and we've already discussed it, but uh, it was actually nominated for an Academy Award. An Academy Award? Yeah, it didn't yeah. actually win, but uh, still nominated as, as actually the only John Carpenter film to be nominated for an acting Academy Award. Pretty deservedly impressive. so. Deservedly so. Mm-hmm. Although Carrie Allen should have had uh, a nomination as well, I thought, but still. I'm surprised she didn't go further. Yeah. But she, oh, she's awesome. She, she, awesome. she was probably one of the few good things about uh, the Crystal Skull uh, Indiana Jones movie, Carrie Allen's Return. Oh, I didn't realise she was in that. She is. I'll have to watch it again. <laughs> um, and also, uh, there's been talk about a possible sequel. Uh, there was actually already sort of a, a semi-sequel in the form of the TV series. It's uh, it, it, During the film, he mentions the fact that he's given her a, a boy baby and that he will eventually grow up and he'll be human, but will have you know knowledge of his uh, alien heritage and stuff. But in the film, and the TV show actually dealt with uh, the Starman returning in a different body and um, meeting up with his son, and then they sort of trek across the country... Uh, sort of the fugitive slash Incredible Hulk style in search of uh, Karen Allen's character, uh, Jenny. I don't remember this. Sort of yeah, it was... Maybe uh, I've wiped it from my mind. Well, it came out in, I think it was like 87 or something like that, and uh, even though it came out in 87, it only came out you know a few years after the film which was released, which was uh, 84 for the States and 85 for Australia. Um, it, the show came out you know only a couple of years after that, but it was actually set in the prologue 15 years later mm-hmm. in order to then have the kid be, you know, a little older and stuff. Yeah, so well, you do... get better dialogue than you would from it. Yeah, so it didn't really make much in the way of sense. But still, you know, hey, it was all right. And yeah, it was it was okay. I mean, it was, it was a product of its time, but uh, I've seen far worse. <laughs> and uh, it only lasted one season, unfortunately. So yeah, it's, it's, it's ordinary, but I've seen far worse. Obviously, uh, I'm a fan <laughs> of the film, and it's, it has, for me, uh, one of the greatest... Explanations of love, uh, the sequence in the diner where she's explaining, where she's defining love, um, for me is just is magnificent and never fails to give me misty eyes. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's overall, I'm just uh, a big fan. It's just uh, John Carpenter may have uh, lost his way in recent times, but uh, for me, his earlier stuff is is 
top notch and I give it uh, four looks. I watched it for the first time when I was a child and then I watched it again very recently having uh, watching a film where the lady's just lost her husband having just gained a husband it gave it a bit of a new perspective um, so there's a whole lot of different emotions that play there that didn't play when I first watched it there's a few things that I had overlooked obviously when I was a child that uh, I'm still willing to overlook now because the film itself the, the whole package is just a wonderful story I give it four and a half looks I'm impressed by this film overall uh, it does have some flawed moments in it, um, but I think that the uh, the resonance of the story stands up very well. I'll give it uh, three and a half looks. This is my second favourite John Carpenter film, and it's a very close second. The thing is my favourite John Carpenter film, but you know this is a hair breadth behind it. Um, I give this four looks. It's marvellous stuff, and any true science fiction fan should see it. Awesome, thanks guys. Now moving on to... From the racks. Okay, so from the racks, we're going to finish off our coverage of the new 52 from DC Comics, the first batch, the number ones. Uh, it's week four or five, depending on how you look at it, uh, but it's our conclusion to that coverage and wow what a slog it has been a huge undertaking and uh, a lot of fun I thought so we might do it again if if uh, Marvel copies DC <laughs> at some point because <laughs> they probably will and here we go starting with Luke on All Star Western alrighty then All Star Western is written by Justin Gray and Jimmy Palmiotti and is illustrated by Moritat for those who don't know All Star Western stars perennial DC cowboy Western star Jonah Hex um, the, Clint East, dis, dis, the disfigured Clint Eastwood, as I like to think of him, and basically this, not whilst not being a continuation per se of the old Jonah Hex series, uh, it's pretty good. This starts off with Jonah Hex visiting Gotham in the eighteen eighties, in which he gets embroiled into a Jack the Ripper-like case involving um, murdered prostitutes. Um, however, he teams up with um, Amadeus Arkham ancestor of um, the current Jeremiah Arkham and the two of them endeavour to solve infiltrate Gotham society and solve um, the mystery of who's um, killing all these women I like it I think I've always liked Jonah Hex um, not so not a, bit, not a big fan of Justin Gray and John, Jimmy Palmiotti in the past however I think that they do a very good job of capturing both the atmosphere of the time plus Jonah Hex's um, character and they play Arkham's more civilised Manner off Jonah Hex's more um, frontiersman uh, like qualities to great effect. Um, they create a nice little relationship here. Maratat's artwork is excellent. A big fan of him on the spirit. This is a pretty cool book. I give it three looks. Uh, so moving on to Richo with Aquaman. Aquaman is written by Jeff Johns and uh, drawn by Ivan Rice. They've actually been working together on quite a few projects in the past. They're sort of one of the A-list creative teams that DC has and did a very memorable run on Green Lantern. And really, I think they were what was needed for a relaunch of Aquaman because he's never really been a hugely successful character in solo books. Um, this was a fairly entertaining read. Beautiful artwork. Um, there's really lovely contrasting between the undersea scenes involving this new race of... Um, monsters, I suppose, that uh, I'm assuming will be the bad guys. So a very nice contrast between that and the um, above the ocean moments. Um, probably my only real problem with this issue is that it really is just one big in-joke. And look, they're, they're really drawing on um, all of the jokes and things that are told about Aquaman as a character and trying to show you why he's far more effective than those jokes would suggest. And look, it's a good approach in that, you know, they do, it, it does show you that Aquaman is an effective character, but I think there's just far too much of it in the issue. It's a little bit too metatextual in that respect. And if, you know, if you don't get the joke, then you're probably reading the issue wondering why it is that so many people are picking on the main character. Yeah, but having said that, I've, overall I was entertained. I thought it was a solid issue. 
I really do hope, though, that uh, in subsequent issues they'll get past that joke and actually move into really telling a stronger story. But I did get a good sense of who Aquaman is as a character. So I'm going to give this one three looks. Cool. Okay, next up we have myself with Blackhawks. Okay, Blackhawks, written by Mike Costa, with layouts by Graham Nolan and finishing by Ken Lashley. Why does no one ever mention the colorists? The colorist was Guy Major. I mean, how's that for a day? Awesome. Okay, so I went into uh, Blackhawks uh, a bit unwillingly, as I was never a fan of the original incarnation. Uh, but I had a bit of fun. Um, starting in the middle of the action was cool, especially uh, Kunouchi. I don't know, whatever. Uh, the cute pink-haired chick. Uh, shooting the water to disrupt the surface tension. Um, I don't know if that's scientifically accurate, but it was cool. And why does no one ever do that? Uh, but it was a little hard to follow at times, especially with the weak art. Um, sorry, guys, but yeah, the artwork wasn't the best. Uh, the Blackhawks logo, though, that looks awesome. Very Thundercatsy. I liked it. The tough girl refusing medical attention bit was uh, cliched, but I do like the retro aspect of gaining superpowers from being doused with toxic waste. How cool is that? Uh, overall, this is a solid G.I. Joe-style you know, action comic, uh, but I won't be continuing with it. Uh, I gave it 2.5 looks. Let's move on yep. to Luke with Batman The Dark Knight. And it doesn't get much better. This is uh, co-plotted by David Finch and Paul Jenkins, and I use the term plotting very loosely. Um, it's written, uh, scripted by Paul Jenkins, and well, it says it's art by David Finch, but um, whilst, I'm, whilst you know David Finch has put pen to paper, I will not call this artwork. This is the <laughs> worst book, the worst Bat book of the relaunch. In terms of the plot and the story, it does nothing that you cannot get from Batman. It just treads, and to a certain, to a lesser extent, even Detective Comics. Mm. It just goes for the same thing, you know. Batman is, you know, the the obsessed Dark Knight of Gotham. Bruce Wayne has a plan for yep. to to revitalize Gotham City. Fights and There's been a, in the second in the second Batman comic in a month. There has been yet another break-in attempt at Arkham <laughs> yep. by the inmates. Now, if they're meant to be related, fine. But there is no correlation between yep. this and Batman as to whether that's the case. There is yet another love interest. So in the past three in the past month. We've been introduced to three potential love interests. Yeah. Um, and this one, it's... Well, he, is, he is Batman. True, but I think there needed to be some kind of... Um, continuity editorial people. continuity worked out between the Just Bat books Dickie as Bale to... Just put there and be done with it. Jaina yeah. Hudson is the one in this one. Yeah. Charlotte Rivers has been introduced to Detective. Catwoman with... You know, talked about that <laughs> in the past. Is Catwoman a love interest, though, or just like a, a sex slave? Okay, oh, no, that's Starfire, sorry. No, 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 Batman is uh, <laughs> Catwoman's sex slave, according to Catwoman number um, one. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is awful. David Finch should not be allowed to put um, pencil, to, uh, pencil to board, let alone put his fingers near a typewriter or a word processor. Paul Jenkins uh, does his best to sort of mitigate the damage, even he can't, you know, stop this from being a complete train wreck. Tell us what you really think, please. This is <laughs> poorly plotted. Even the page layouts and the cross-cutting between one panel to the next is inconsequential. One being when Batman lands on a rooftop trying to get to a function as Bruce Wayne. You see him land on the roof, and in the next panel, you see Bruce Wayne almost fully dressed. Now, okay, uh, uh, running to the running to the um the the function takes out his. Um, his grappling gun fires it and then flying foxes from one building to the other Bruce Wayne needs to use Batman's grappling gun to get to his own function he can't just hire the Wayne helicopter and do what he does in Dark Knight and just land right at the last minute and second of all the the panel going from Batman landing on the roof to him getting changed to Bruce Wayne I was sitting there going hang on there is a time jump here that makes no sense okay yes I hate decompressed storytelling but please a panel telling me that he is getting changed somewhere, out of sight. Even like a Superman if, style, if, ripping the they, 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 the they, they show him running and him dressing at the same time. Yeah. But even so, the the time jump is still too. There is too much time that has elapsed between two. If that had but, been Catwoman, there would have been a boob hanging out. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> my biggest uh, my biggest problem with that scene is. Why did he need to land on the roof next door and fire across? I, I mean, why not just land, land on the on roof, the roof. Yeah. change on the roof, and go downstairs? <laughs> And the action is terrible. The characterization is... I'm not even going to say adequate. This is... Yeah, the, the characterization is terrible. 
and the last page of Revelation makes no sense. As in, okay, yes, it's going to be explained in the upcoming issues, but I sat there going, really? Are you kidding me? The yeah, very is, last is, is line that the best you makes could do? no sense. <laughs> this is zero looks from me. So let's move on to Richo with The Fury of Firestorm. Uh, the Fury of Firestorm is co-plotted by Ethan Van Skyver and Gail Simone. It's scripted by Gail Simone. And it is penciled by Yildare Sinar. And I hope I've gotten that name right. I'm just going to run with it. Um, Into the cool name list. Absolutely. This is... The full title of the book is The Fury of Firestorm, The Nuclear Men. And this is a complete reboot. Starting from scratch introducing the characters right from the outset neither of uh ronnie raymond or jason rush the former firestorms neither of them have actually been firestorm in continuity to date however they are now both firestorm and in fact can apparently form into a gestalt being called fury that's at least that seems to be the suggestion of the book look this was not a great first issue it's there's a couple of uh i think cliches that it runs with the opening with the you know with the terrorist attack um was one of them neither of the two lead characters really come across as um likable or really all that interesting just yet um i just i didn't really feel any great connection to either of them there are some, a couple of very interesting elements here. There's something called the Firestorm Protocols, which is set up as a mystery, and it seems to suggest that there are firestorms all over the globe. There's a, a very interesting uh, page where you get to see what looks like a, a, a perhaps a Chinese or a Japanese firestorm. And a Chinese. A, yeah, and a, and a few others as well. And, um, and Firehawk. And Firehawk is in there as well, which is actually kind of interesting because it means, therefore, that Firehawk now predates Firestorm in this new rebooted version of the characters. Um, look, there's there's enough of a mystery and an interest in the nature of Firestorm to sort of hold me through this issue, but I just didn't feel the characters very much. Um, I really would have liked something a little bit more interesting from them um, for why I should be interested in them becoming Firestorm. But um, having said that, look, it was a it was a solid enough first issue, enough that I would, you know, be interested in checking out a, a few more issues at least, just to see what the deal is with this Firestorm protocols. But I'm hoping that we'll get a lot more reason to care for the characters as the series progresses. Um, I'm going to give this two and a half Lukes. Okay, so next up we have Luke with the Flash. Mm, okay, uh, Flash issue one is. Let me just check. It is co-plotted um, and co-written by uh, Francis Manipal and Brian Bucciolato, um, and with art by Francis Manipal and Brian Bucciolato. Actually, does the colours going on? You know why that we mentioned the colourists? <laughs> the reason I mentioned the colourists before is because he had a cool, cool name. <laughs> but I, just, I just found it interesting that the co-plotter of this also colours the book. Um, and cool. is effectively um, a reintroduction of the Flash. And that it's set during the Flash's early days, set during the, um, Barry Allen's early days. Barry Allen is the Flash here. Sorry to give that away, guys. Um, <laughs> it's, it's right at the start. It's not giving anything away. People might be looking at the cover going, hmm, I wonder who the Flash is this time around. It's a younger fight. Um, yeah, a younger, Bar- a younger Barry Allen set during his um, the start of his career as the Flash. Um, and it's basically just an introduction to you know who the character is, what he is, forensic psychologist, his relationships, Patty Spigot. With hints that Iris Allen, Iris West, I should say, will play a much more prominent role uh, in preceding issues. There is um, a mystery concerning Barry Allen's um, friend Manuel. Um, I think the artwork in this is sumptuous. Um, I think it's I think it's excellent. I'm a big fan of Francis Manipal ever since his Legion superhero days. Loved his earlier run on the Flash with Jeff Johns, and I think he does a fantastic job here, co-plotting it himself has given him free reign in his artwork to try and see, to try and push himself even more as an artist in terms of page layout to really nice effect um, one, especially the title especially the title the title splash page the title, yeah. if I have any problems with this as an issue it's a long time Flash reader coming into it given that he plays such a prominent role in Flashpoint being the main character and given that Flashpoint ended with their introduction of this new universe found it a bit disjarring 
um, with the um, the status quo that they set up in the Flash. Used to you know Iris West being his um, his wife, not used to Patty Spivet. It took a while to, for me to go to get my head around the whole idea that this was actually taken back beforehand because there's nothing in the story itself, like no little caption saying six years ago, what have you, saying um, when this is set and what really what the status quo is. Um, so it took a while to get around that. Apart from that, top notch, full looks. Cool. Okay, so moving on to myself with Green Latin New Guardians. Listeners of the podcast will know that I was very excited about this book. It's I mentioned it in every episode <laughs> for the last ones. Um, I was really looking forward to it. And uh, here's my review. <laughs> so, New Guardians is written by Tony Bernard with pencils by Tyler Kirkham. Uh, I'm not going to mention the colours because I can't pronounce his name. But uh, <laughs> yeah, um, the colours are good, so good work, whoever you were. As I've said before, this is not a true number one. Um, it follows directly on from a previous Green Lantern story, in this case being Emerald Twilight, uh, but with a strange sort of twist. The art is nice. It's nothing uh, flash, but it's, it's good, serviceable. It's no J.H. Williams, but at least it's not David Finch. I love the Infinity Gauntlet-style story that's going on. Uh, the cover even alludes to an Infinity Gauntlet-type deal with all with different uh, members of the, of the various core members fighting for the rings that are just out of their reach. It's very cool. So basically the story, it deals with Kyle Rayner as a Lantern. Now, I actually found this uh, a tad confusing. So at first, uh, upon first reading, I had uh, this massive rant about they've, you know, why reintroduce uh, Kyle as a, like a, as a rebooted character. And this makes no sense. And Kyle's in Blackest Night. How does it work? Blah, blah, blah. I sort of went on like a bit of an idiot. But uh, upon closer inspection and uh, rereading, I can see that it actually... It is actually introducing Kyle as the Kyle that we all know and love. As I said, he's actually my favourite Latin. Uh, we have a bit of a flashback at the start. So like I said, the Emerald Twilight thing. And then moving to present day where he's actually a Latin and he's, he's been in action for a while and people pick on him because he's designed his own suit and all that sort of stuff. So a tad confusing, I thought. Kind of weird, but hey, that's you know, neither here nor there. Now, um, so like I said, the story uh, involves uh, everybody fighting over these rings. So the rings actually leave... Certain members of the other core uh, in, it's a, in a term called decommissioning. Um, for some of them, it's pretty bad because uh, one is in the middle of a fight, although he's one of the la- one of the yellow lands, so he probably deserves it. Um, another one's a, a star sapphire who's in the middle of deep space, so uh, that's pretty unfortunate for her. Uh, and they all then fly to Earth in order to join with their new chosen host, Kyle, which is something that's never been seen before. So multiple rings choosing the one candidate. So. Lex Luthor's obviously going to be very upset because he spent like, quite a substantial amount of time trying to get different rings. Ah, but did he? Well, yes, that's true. That's pre, pre-reboot, so it didn't happen now. And, of course, the, the issue ends with the various lands uh, trying to fight off and reclaim the rings that they claim uh, Kyle has stolen, who, of course, has no idea what's going on. And like I said, at first uh, it was a bit confusing, so I wasn't too impressed because I, was I was too busy you know, having nerd rage about why did they bother to reboot Kyle? It doesn't make any sense and all that sort of stuff. But then, upon uh, reflection and, and reading it again, I, you know, I kind of like it. It works pretty well. So overall, uh, I liked it. It was uh, pretty cool. It probably wasn't as good as my expectations, uh, my unusually high expectations wanted it to be, and probably still not the best of the new Lantern books, in my opinion. I actually preferred Red Lanterns. Uh, so, but overall, it was enjoyable, and I give it 3.5 looks. Okay, so if anybody was wondering why the lovely Crystal hadn't reviewed any yet, but she, she actually only had uh, one issue this batch. Uh, so coming up, Crystal with I Vampire. Yeah, Rich is going to do the creative team for me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the writer's name is Joshua Hale Fialkov, and the artist is Andrea Sorrentino. Well, firstly, let me just say I'm not really much of a vampire fan, but I gave this one a go. Uh, on the first the first page, I found it very unclear of what was going on. The artwork was too muddy. I couldn't see that there was a person on the ground until the stake got driven into his body. Then we get to the second page, and it's not made terribly clear why he staked the guy or who the character is. Is it the same as the male lead character from the rest of the book, or is it someone else? Um, I found the conversation easy enough to follow, but it's often not clear who's speaking. The scenes shift too many times and it gets confusing as to the location. Um, and while I like, actually like the inky artwork style, I found there's not enough 
definition in the characters to make them recognisable. So if I picked up another book with these same characters in it, I probably wouldn't know who they were. Um, I found the storyline rather boring, nothing I haven't sort of heard before, and I gave it one look. Awesome. Okay, moving on to Richo with Justice League Dark. Uh, Justice League Dark is written by Peter Milligan and drawn by Michael Jannon. Um, I just want to preface my review here by saying that um, DC could not have put together a team more appealing to me than the one they have here. Uh, Zatanna, Dead Man, Shade the Changing Man, John Constantine, Madame Zanadu. I absolutely love all of those characters. They should have named the team the, the David Ridges and All Stars. That's right. It's like some. It's like Peter Milligan sat down and went, "That guy in Melbourne, <laughs> which characters would he like to see on this magical team that I'm putting together?" Yeah, so I might be a little bit biased in my review of uh, Justice League Dark, but for me, this was actually the book of the week. I think it does an excellent job of establishing a, a little bits and pieces about who these characters are without necessarily giving you everything you need to know about them. But there's enough there that I'm intrigued by all of the characters. Um, I don't know if it's new reader friendly. As I said, I love these characters so much that, um, you know, that that could just be me. But I liked the fact that it does establish certain elements of who the characters are and they are all kind of messed up to one degree or another. Um, the framing sequence with uh, Madame Xanadu reading the cards I think works really well as a way of leading in and out of the different scenes in the book. More importantly, it establishes why this book should exist, why the Justice League needs to have a team like this working with them, um, because we're shown very clearly that there are certain magical threats that the Justice League can't necessarily handle and that they need magical experts to come in um, to, to deal with these kind of problems. So so we're given a reason why the team exists. We're introduced to the characters. There's a mystery set up um, involving June Moon and multiple versions of herself that are appearing, getting hit by cars. And, and there's some other very weird things happening um, in this book. But one of the things that appealed to me is that once upon a time, before there was Vertigo, DC produced effectively superhero horror comic books that were a little bit weirder and just sort of, you know, off-centre from uh, the usual fare. And this was very reminiscent of that sort of approach. I'm talking about things like um, Alan Moore's Swamp Thing, Doom Patrol and Animal Man by Grant Morrison, and of course, Peter Milligan's Shade the Changing Man. So this was a very much a throwback to that, and I appreciated that. Um, I was never a big fan of separating those characters from the regular DCU anyway. So seeing them sort of back here... Seeing them interacting with the DCU again, that that was a very big selling point for me. But yeah, but overall I think it, it worked well for me as a first issue. Gave me enough of the characters, a good aspect of the, uh, you know, good story points, um, sets up a nice mystery. There's some really nice, clear artwork here. I found it very easy to follow. And the characters looked distinct from one another. Uh, the facial structures, um, it's very easy to distinguish, say, between... Um, Madame Xanadu and Zatanna, for example, um, in that their facial structures are very different, their costumes are different, so it works well in that respect. And um, yeah, as I said, I just loved the story, loved the characters, loved the artwork, and uh, I give this four and a half loops. So coming up next, myself with Teen Titans. Okay, so Teen Titans is written by Scott Lobdell, a long-time comics industry person, and penciled by Brett Booth, from formerly of the, the Wildstorm universe and various stuff. Okay, so it's standard Brett Booth artwork. Uh, if you're familiar with his artwork, it hasn't changed all that much. Uh, it's good for teenagers. He's, he's very good at doing sort of the the trim skateboarder type body. I'd like to see a sort of a Spider-Man, Peter Parker sort of deal with him. So lean, you know, lean frames and stuff. Uh, but all the adults all look very strange. So uh, not, not too sure it works and stuff, but a good choice for a teen book, at least that works. The story is, is basically the formation of the team, not counting uh, some of the members, so it does a bit of a Justice League, it shows the entire team on the cover, but it doesn't introduce, every, it doesn't have everybody coming to the team, but it does at least show the other members in sort of, uh, in a pretty cool little uh, scene where Robin is looking at news reports and stuff like that. Uh, but it mainly focuses on uh, the uh, mentioned uh, Robin, who's called Red Robin, former psychic of 
Batman and uh, Cassie, who doesn't like to be called Wonder Girl, whose buddy is Wonder Girl. I uh, don't understand why Cassie seems so reluctant to activate her powers and uh, smack the cop, the fake cop guy that's attacking her. I mean, it's kind of odd. I mean, she seems quite timid, and uh, it's like it's either a really bad acting performance or it's just inconsistent storytelling. Uh, because then, when the, she activates her powers and kicks some butt, she's really rude and antagonistic uh, to Tim, who's you know one of the nicest people in the world. It's 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 kind of strange. It's, I didn't quite understand it. Maybe I just didn't read it right. Tim is cool. I mean, Tim is just basically Tim, the same as uh, pre-reboot. Uh, Cassie, they've changed her. I mean, this is not the usual Cassie. She's like I said, she's rude. She's antagonistic. Doesn't like to be called Wonder Girl, which you know she know he knows she's, that's what she's going to be called anyway. Unless they change it to Power Girl, maybe who knows. But she does look cool and she does kick a lot of butt. The actual issue itself, though, I found uh, other than the uh, the cool sort of Red Robin sequences, actual issue itself, I thought was pretty lacklustre, to be honest with you. I mean, nothing much really happens that you haven't seen a billion times before. I mean, it's if you ever read. A Scott Lobdell <laughs> or even a, a Brett Booth pencil comic before you've, you've seen it all before um, I did like the bit where Robin was looking uh, at all the different newscasts that were showing all the different superpower teenagers and stuff that was pretty cool I did like the metahuman teenager menace angle it was uh, pretty it's it's like classic X-Men sort of stuff which is pretty cool you know superpower teenagers running amok that was pretty cool, but um, and it was a nice little parable for the no one understands teenagers, you know, and uh, sort of thing. So that was all right. One particular scene that I really didn't like was the scene where Cassie's ripping apart the auto-controlled chopper. There's some computer scans occurring of various parts of her body, but it's not clear where exactly these scans are coming from. Who is actually scanning her? It's not the chopper because it's underneath her. It's not Tim because. He doesn't mention anything about scanning her abilities or powers or anything. You have to assume that it's, it's you know, these mysterious nowhere people at some point. I don't know, it's, just, it's not very clear and it just I thought it was kind of silly and a pretty weak scene in my opinion. And poorly drawn as well. And also in terms of the chopper, I mentioned earlier the Black Hawks logo and how it was cool. and But it seemed kind of strange that, you know, they're so upset about getting it photographed and then put on the internet. It's like, well then why bother having a logo? Well, here you have this this computer-controlled, you know, attack chopper trying to kill people from this mysterious nowhere organization, which had been introduced previously in the Superboy comic. But then they have a nowhere logo on the side of their chopper. It's like, why? Not only is there a logo on the chopper, but it's a stupid logo. It's just an N and a W. It looks like it's being drawn by a five-year-old. And it's actually different to the same logo that's on their uniforms in the nowhere installation when you actually see Caitlin in the Superboy comic. It's... Very, very odd. I, I don't know what Brett was thinking at that particular time. But, you know, the bit at the end was pretty cool, and uh, I'm interested in the formation of the team, but I'm probably not going to continue on. I don't know, unless something really, really cool happens in the next issue. I'm really not that interested. I'd be more interested, if, to be honest with you, if it was actually just Tim, because he was the best character in the book. Uh, I gave it uh, three looks. Cool. Superman? Superman! Okay, Superman is one of the ones that I've been looking forward to. It's um, written and with layout artwork by George Perez, um, the mighty George Perez, in my opinion, and with finishing artwork by Jesus Marino. And I like this quite a lot. In some respects, it's quite um, generic. The main the main focus of the action is um, Superman fighting a big fiery monster over the skies of Metropolis. But I, one of the nice things about um, that and the rest of the issue is just how dense and how tightly packed it all is. You know, I felt that I had to read every panel and read every word to get the story. It wasn't a, a quick read. It um, took you know a good twenty to fifteen minutes to to get through the issue. It starts off being about the um, the tra- transition from the Daily Planet being just a print-based organization to being a more digital organization after having been taken over by Morgan Edge. And that creates a bit of conflict for Lois and Clark because Clark's more of a traditionalist, wants to keep, you know, the print-based uh, newspaper going. Plus, doesn't like Morgan Edge as a person, thinks he's quite shady and believes he's up to something. As opposed to Lois, who had been given a bit of a career opportunity from this. Plus, also sees the the necessity of the evil needing to go from a dying media to something that's more expansive and that will keep them all in. Um, keep them all in jobs, um, and on the face of it, that doesn't sound that might not sound particularly interesting. But it does um, provide you some insight into the character, and gives you a central basis for the relationship between Lois and Clark. 
um, the progressive versus the traditionalist stance, which is sort of what's always been at the heart of their relationship. Anyway, um, I love George Perez's layout work, and I think Jesus Marina does a great job finishing his work. The, I like the characterization. I recognised each character immediately, and each character was distinct. It's one. Of, this is one of the few occasions where the Superman costume has worked. I think it's very nicely drawn. Um, I miss the red undies. <laughs> Nobody else does. Yeah, I. I I like the new costume. In the in the right in the right hand, this costume looks good. In mm. Jim Lee's hand, the costume looks terrible. <laughs> yeah, on the whole, it's uh, I like it as a first issue. Um, I want to see where the rest of the story is going before I say that this series is an absolute success. Um, but on the basis of this, really enjoyable. Three and a half looks. Fair enough. Richard, the Savage Hawkman. Hawkman number one is written by <laughs> Savage <Tony> Hawkman. <laughs> the Savage. <laughs> My gosh, he's so savage. The Savage Hawkman number one is written by Tony Daniel, with art by Philip Tan. And I do want to point out here the colorist Sunny Go. I think it's Go, it's G-H-O, so I'm going to assume that the surname is Go. Um, it's like an ice cream. It does a bit, does it? Or, Sunny or, no, Go. Actually, no, it sounds more like a, uh, an orange juice. Sunny Go. <laughs> but I will say, boy. The, re- the reason I mentioned Sunny Go is that I think he's actually pretty much the artistic hero of this book. He does a good job. Uh, he's, he's actually created a, almost a painted look uh, for Philip Tan's artwork. That, uh, That's going to be my exact comment. Great artwork, a painted look. Yeah. Well, it, it helps the book, I think, stand out a bit from some of the more sort of generic artistic efforts uh, in this relaunch. Um, and the artwork is, is, is relatively good as well. Um, there's a couple of... I don't know, there's a couple of moments where characters look a little bit uncomfortable in their poses. Like, they're not standing like real people. Um, but for the most one, part... One size underwear. Yeah, yeah, exactly <laughs> right. Well, there's certainly, there's certainly a couple of moments in here with um, some of the male characters where they do actually look like they're a bit sort of uncomfortable. And it's like they've been asked to stand in a certain way and it's not a very natural way and it just doesn't look quite right but um, yeah. but it's only a very minor point um, overall the artwork is quite nice unfortunately the story doesn't really uh, live up to the artwork and especially the colouring it's a fairly standard story but it does it sort of asks you to have a knowledge of who Hawkman is we've come at, into his career at some point where he's Strangely enough, disillusioned or something. I, I don't. Know. I don't really know what's going on there, but he's decided he's going to burn all of his, uh, you know, alien metal um, costume, his priceless costume. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Yeah, it's just like, and, and it's like he's driven out hillbilly style. He's driven out into the middle of the woods and pours some, you know, alcohol on it to set fire to it. I'm thinking, well, why? Like, why is the what's brought the character to this this point? Like, you know, because there's there's no sort of real mention of it after that because then we just get into the story so um so i feel like i've come in halfway through a story that you know i don't really know um i'm assuming maybe this is a follow-on from my world yeah well it seems like maybe this is a follow-on maybe something happened in brightest day which i admit i haven't read that i should know about or something but um my other big problem with it is that carter hall is just not a very interesting character in this book um and i'm a big hawkman fan i've always loved the character but here he's just kind of, eh, I'm complaining, I'm burning my stuff, uh, then I'm going to go off and you know, investigate something that they found in the ocean. It's like, but where's the interesting character points? You know, okay, his burning of the costume might be an interesting character point if I knew why. If I knew what had actually progressed him to that point, then I might be able to care a little bit more about the character. But it's just, there's really just not much, not much to him in this book. You know, he comes across as quite sort of, two-dimensional and a little dull there's a kind of interesting villain we don't really know much about him i'm hoping we'll find out a little bit more and you know there's a a reasonably interesting sort of cliffhanger ending involving that villain and a transformation that villain goes through but it just wasn't enough to really hold my my interest and i have to say this book as a hawkman fan this book was a bit of a disappointment for me um i give it two looks Okay, so the last one in this group, and to finish off our epic coverage of uh, DC's New 52, I have myself with Voodoo. First off, let me get the uh, the standards out of the way, the creative team. Uh, story by Ron Mars, with art and cover by Sammy Bassery. And just for the hell of it, I'll throw on the colorist, Jessica Colleen, Colline, something like that. But 
a cool name anyway. Okay, where to begin? Listeners of the last episode will know exactly how I feel about the portrayal of the majority of female characters in this reboot. It hasn't affected everyone, but the majority of female characters have been portrayed as over-the-top caricatures of comic females popular in the 90s. They are the perfect female fantasy for DC's target audience, remember the 13 the 21 male, uh, the sexy, perfectly proportioned bodied personifications of their sexual fantasies. Catwoman almost bursting out of her costume and Starfire, poor Starfire who just wants to take you to her bed and won't bother you with little things like emotional attachment or even knowing your name afterwards. The perfect girl! Now the Starfire situation still stands to me as the worst example of this, but Voodoo is a very close second. Here we have an African-American female with her own title. Something to celebrate, surely. Yet how do we first encounter our main character? Half naked and on all fours with her boobs hanging out. That's right, she's a stripper. An exotic dancer, whatever you want to call her, I don't care. Now to be fair, Voodoo was a former stripper in her previous incarnation when she was part of the Wildcats. But that's no reason to keep her as one in this new universe. Why couldn't she have been a scientist, or a doctor, or an engineer? I mean, they changed Caitlin. Why couldn't they have changed her? I mean, it's a reboot. Why not give her some other sort of job? What advantage exactly does being a stripper give her in her mission? There's a line mentioned about being a good place to learn about men with their defences down, and later there's a tidbit that some of them might be uh, high up in the military you know, echelons uh, with juicy military secrets to reveal. But this is a very weak excuse. Surely she would have had a better success telepathically gleaming military secrets as a secretary or an aide to one of these military guys, in the actual military itself. Anything would have been better than just shimmying her boobs at them. What man is going to be thinking about their top secret info while they're looking at a gorgeous naked woman? More likely they're thinking about how much they want to have sex with her. Really helpful to her mission, that must be. Maybe it's not part of her strategy. Maybe she just likes being a stripper. But I'm tired of hearing that female empowerment crap used by some to justify their objectification of other human beings or by the strippers or exotic dancers themselves in order to cover their own self-loathing. There is even a scene in the comic where the other strippers all discuss why they do what they do. It is so weak. Now the art is actually very cool, (laughs) strangely enough. It's quite realistic, it's uh, very well done, the the plotting and storytelling is actually quite good. But I've just got to point out, the art is actually in some ways too good. I mean, Voodoo herself it is uh, portrayed as the perfect woman. I mean, she starts off with, with an introduction by the the MC or whatever, the DJ or whatever the hell he's meant to be, I don't know, as, as, as the perfect woman. So, wow, she's so perfect, she couldn't possibly be human. And of course, sure enough, she isn't. She, you know, she is whatever she is, an alien, demon, knight, whatever it is, turns out to be, I don't know. So what a great message this be, must be for any young female readers that, that could possibly be reading this. We discussed before about what title we thought could be actually um, pointed to the, to the young female readers. Well, I hope to Christ it isn't this. I'll end with some positives just because I'm a rant, so obviously I'm getting a bit emotional. So uh, like I said, the artwork is uh, quite good. The colouring is also quite good. The female agent, uh, I can't remember her name, but she was pretty cool, kicked a bit of butt. Um, and of course, didn't take you know didn't take her clothes off, which is a bonus. And Voodoo's uh, Daemonite or alien or whatever form that she eventually has at the end, it that does look really really cool. Sort of, uh, they obviously went to a lot of detail uh, in terms of like her fingers are segmented and stuff like that, like a lizard and stuff. She looks like a like a, a humanoid Komodo dragon or something. Which I actually thought she looked pretty groovy. But overall, this issue is right down there with Red Hood and Catwoman for me. And it could, it's a, such a shame because it could have been so much more. Uh, I give this 0.5 Luke's and only because the artwork was really that good. The rest of it was a disgrace. Okay, so we've had it ended on a bit of a sour note, but uh, that's it. That's our wrap-up of the New 52. As we as this uh, is released, the some of the number twos for the first batch are actually coming out. So yep. um, Stormwatch and Action, uh, Animal Man. Swamp Thing. Swamp Thing. OMAC. OMAC, yeah. Detective. So uh, Batwing. Yep. Yeah, so... Check them out. I mean, uh, let's hope... Except for Batwing and Detective. I didn't mind Batwing, too. I actually thought it was right. (laughs) But, you know, I like the first one, so it was right. I think the the most important thing to take away from this is that um, it has generated excitement um, within the comic industry. It's gotten lapsed readers returning. Yep. Um, I've read a lot of the retailer reviews 
online from the comic owners and they're saying that they're getting readers who haven't been in for read comics for five to ten years are coming back in because of the interest in this yeah. um they're seeing new readers coming in you know numbers on all of the sales of the book the books are all going into second third fourth printings so yeah. the numbers are high um we haven't even seen what the result of the day and date digital releases are yet but I think it's already, we can declare this a big success in the short term. Huge. You know, and that, that's just got to be great for the industry to get these high numbers, to get these new people coming in. Um, and I do have to applause, whilst I don't agree with the way DC did all of these books, I do compliment them for actually creating genuine interest from people and from getting new and lapsed readers back into the comic stores again. I think that's fantastic. It is fantastic. I mean, it's, I mean yeah, I agree. I, I, may, I mean, I may disagree with some of their creative decisions, uh, but they've done what they set out to do. And that's mm. you know revitalize the industry, and there's nobody, and it, nobody who says that they they haven't done that. And it's worked. Um, the Diamond's top top one hundred listings have just come in, and they've got um, eight of the top ten. Yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty impressive. And the first seven are all DC. So, so it's it's a good thing for the industry, and hopefully, I mean, yeah, there's been some uh, bad picks, but uh, hopefully, this you know the the, the Increase in industry awareness will now mean that other creators who actually have good ideas can, you know, come forward and make their books mm. and, and be successful. So it's good. It can only it can only lead to good things in the future. Well, thank you for joining us on our <laughs> new DC Fifty Two Extravaganza. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. As normal as we have for the last couple of episodes, uh, the edited version will be in this, the podcast itself, the one that you're listening to now. But for a full uh, unedited version of all of our comments please check out the website for our audio review. Especially if you want to hear more of me. That's right. <laughs> and how could you not want to? <laughs> okay, a couple of uh, episodes back, the last two episodes, we actually had a competition running uh, based on the New 52. It were, We were given away a copy of both The Killing Joke and Arkham Asylum Trades uh, to someone who answered a question based on Detective Comics number 1, which was in the first batch of issues. Uh, oh, the entries closed uh, yesterday. Uh, that question was, at the start of Detective Comics number one, Batman mentions how many people the Joker has killed. What is that number? So that's how many people up until that point. So the answer is 114. Uh, all correct entries were written down onto a piece of paper and put into a hat, a very high-tech system, um, and were then drawn by Crystal. And the winner is Jason Roberts from Queensland, Australia. Congratulations, Jason. Well done, Jason. In his original email, he actually emailed the answer into us. Uh, his email was hilarious. Uh, they, had, they had the usual stuff, you know, great, uh, great podcast, and they had lots of to keep up the good work and that sort of stuff, so thanks, dude. Uh, but he also had, uh, he also wrote that he already had copies of these trades, but they're so worn out from constant reading that he desperately needs new copies. Well, I can understand that, because they're both brilliant uh, stories, so... Uh, don't worry about that because the brand new copies are on their way to you, or at least they will be tomorrow when I get to a post office. Uh, so thanks to everybody else who entered. We'll be having another competition uh, fairly soon. Not too sure what that'll be, but I've got a, a, some swag we can give away. So uh, we'll have another one, and uh, hopefully if you didn't win this one, if your name is not Jason Roberts and obviously you didn't win, then uh, hopefully you'll enter the next one and, uh, and win in that one. So congratulations again to Jason. Coming up next, coming soon. Okay, a better batch uh, of releases, well, depends on better, depends on your point of view, I suppose, but at least more releases than there was the last episode where we just had uh, Real Steel or whatever it is. Uh, so on October 13, we have The Thing. So remake, prequel, whatever. Yeah, unnecessary, but what can you do? Um, you guys? Meh. Yeah. I just don't see the point. Yeah. You're going to be shocked for them not seeing the original. Trey's own Rose Byrne. And Jolligerton. I just don't see the point of having, you know, I don't need to know what the Norwegian story was. They met the alien, the alien killed them. I know. That's all you need to know, really. Everything you need to know about the Norwegian story is found at the beginning (laughs) of the first, of the, of the John Carpenter movie. Pointless, but at least not a ridiculous, you know, another remake sort of thing. I don't know. It's it's a a better concept than just remaking Footloose. Hmm. (laughs) <laughs> you know what, what can be told <laughs> anyway moving on uh, then on October 20 we have Contagion which I think actually looks pretty cool based uh, sort of you know what, what would happen in the real world if uh, 
you know, contagion spread around the planet. It's been done plenty of times before, but hey, it's got some top-notch actors in it, so... Yeah, I'm holding judgment for now. Like I said, it's not a very original idea. It's, mm. We've seen dozens and dozens of movies, but but I'll give it the benefit of the doubt until I see it. Mm. As you say, it's got a good cast, so it could be interesting. Yeah. Made in conjunction with um, Who, not the band, but the World Health Organization. So, <laughs> so, it's, it's, so it's as scientific as possible. I was about to say, Doctor, the guys behind Doctor Who got involved? Oh, cool. God. Let's hope not. And on the same day, we also have uh, Paranormal Activity 3. Oh. So continuing the Paranormal Activity juggernaut. No, at the box office. Yeah, so one's, uh, you know, one's alright, two's boring, and uh, three, I haven't seen it yet, so I don't know, and I don't plan on seeing it anyway. I'll hold just off. how far can you stretch this idea, seriously? I'll hold off until I get to Paranormal Activity 7 and then just watch the whole series in one day. A new beginning. I'd yeah. rather watch the next one. <laughs> yeah, good point. Uh, and if you're in Melbourne, our favourite cinema, The Aster, is actually showing a John Waters retrospective starting October 14 to 16. Uh, and then a silent film festival in the following weekend, October 22 to 23. Uh, the John Water retrospective I have zero interest in. I'd rather read Red Hood again. Uh, but the silent film festival looks pretty cool. Starts off with uh, Last of the Mohicans and also has uh, Phantom of the Opera. And the original version, silent version of Chicago as well. As well as a few uh, Charlie Chaplin shorts thrown in for good measure. So, so pretty cool. They yeah. also have all their usual sort of stuff, you know, double bills and stuff like that. I won't bother listening listing all of it, but uh, check out uh, www.asta-theatre.com uh, for the full details. Okay, so, everybody, thank you very much for the excellent reviews and for You're going through the juggernaut welcome. that was the DC New 52. Yeah, thank you. My oh. mind has been expanded, <laughs> and in some very uncomfortable ways, too. <laughs> Fortunately, there were some issues that contracted your mind as well, so it'll balance <laughs> out in the end. So uh, don't forget you can contact us by email at feedback at nerdculturepodcast.com or post on our Facebook wall at www.facebook.com forward slash nerdculturepodcast or tweet us at at nerdculturecast. And last but not least, you can leave a comment on any of our posts on our website at www.nerdculturepodcast.com. Uh, and don't forget you can rate and review us on iTunes and please subscribe to the podcast. The more subscribers we get, the cooler we become. <laughs> Until our coolness can be contained no more. <laughs> as cool as as uh, we want to be vanilla rice. We want to be gurus of cool, and right now we're the vanilla rice of cool. So as cool help as, us out. as cool as nerds gets. Anyway. As cool as the fonts. <laughs> nobody's nobody's as cool as the fonts. Come on. So tune in next episode for Dust Jacket on my favourite sci-fi book of all time, Stars My Destination by Alfred Bester. And while you're at it, please jump onto the website and check out Dust Jacket. Uh, we've just posted a review of Larry Niven's Ringworld. And uh, to coincide with The Stars My Destination, we'll also be doing a written review of The Demolished Man, uh, the other classic Alfred Bester science fiction novel. Cool. So yeah, so you t- um, check out the website. Uh, as There was a, a post from myself where I put the assistant editor in charge, so Jan Richardson and Jan Luke. <laughs> were in charge and posted the Metropolis review, excellent review. Thank you. And uh, the mentioned uh, Rimwood review. So uh, uh, while Crystal and myself went out on a honeymoon, <laughs> so we're back now, as you can tell, because we're on this podcast. We didn't Skype it in. We're actually physically here, and uh, I'm, I'm taking back the reins. <laughs> I'm changing your password. No. No, you did a good job. Thank you very much. Definitely like a new thing for you know the 21st century for actors. They didn't phone it. They no longer phone their performances in. They Skype it in. Skype it in. <laughs> so yeah, so as mentioned, Dust Jacket on uh, Stars My Destination. And uh, we also have a War Room discussion on sci-fi predictions that actually came true. And of course, we'll then follow it up in a future episode with sci-fi predictions that haven't yet come true. Jetpacks. What's up with that? How science failed <laughs> to deliver. <laughs> But first, we'll do, the ones that did, we'll do the ones that did actually come true. So, once again, guys, thank you very much for joining us. An excellent episode. And thank you, uh, dear listener, for listening to our episode. And uh, we feel the love. And like I said, for the episode itself, please check out iTunes and the website. And for an uh, unedited version of the full 52 number ones issue, check out our auto review on the website. And be here in two weeks for episode 10. So this is David, your host, signing off. Uh, thank you to Crystal. Bye. Richo. Sorry, I'm now the savage Richo. <laughs> and look. Too much voodoo hurts my brain. <laughs> it's the voodoo that you do so well. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> <laughs>
Do you not pronounce it booth? Is it actually booth? Booty. That's right, Brett Booty. Shake your booty. Yeah, sorry, dude. I didn't. I wasn't. I didn't think I was looking at you weird. I was just listening to what you were saying. Don't look at him. It makes him nervous. <laughs> Don't look at me. Don't look at me. <laughs> You're all mean. Yes. You've got a love. That's you. what makes us fun. Nerd culture podcast. The meanest podcast in the world.